This is the Swampscott Public Library's Librarians by the Sea podcast, where we share our love of a good book with you. I'm your host, Caroline Margolis. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Librarians by the Sea podcast. Today, I have with me Sarah Jardina, and she is our new YA librarian at the Swampscott Public Library. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you for having me. Today, we thought we would kick this off by talking about middle grade books and their bad adaptations. From personal experience, I like to get into Artemis Fowl, which was, yeah, that was one of my favorite books when I was, I guess, like, uh, like an early tween, like maybe like 11 to 12 or so, maybe a little bit earlier than that. And recently, Disney made the Artemis Fowl movie, and it was, it was not good. (laughs) No, something. It was, it was a choice. They made choices. There were choices that were made. Yes. By somebody. (laughs) Who knows who? <laughs> um, but I guess getting into Artemis Fowl, I really like that it was sort of an anti-hero story, which I always find more fun. And there's bringing in like a magical element, but also high tech. And I think it's a fun mixture of fantasy and science fiction, which I think is kind of hard to nail. But I think Ewan Crawford does a good job with it. Yeah. There are some things in the books that always annoyed me, like the misogyny. I felt like even in 2000, it was just unnecessary. But of course, these books are written in Ireland, so maybe maybe it was different. Like maybe it was a little bit of a cultural disconnect. But I mean, even then I was like, can we not do this? Yeah, it always did feel a little bit tacked on and not mm-hmm. really explored with any kind of purpose in the story. It kind of just felt like it diverted from the themes. Yeah, it just felt like it was there just to check just, a box. just to check a box, just to have some conflict for yeah. like two very interesting good characters to talk about before they sort of hit their strive of their actual characteristics. And uh, we're talking about um, Holly and Julius. Other than that, I really didn't have many complaints about the books. Like they were just really good. They were really. They were just, there was so much like tension and like, I remember in the Arctic incident, like when, not to give anything away, but with Foley during like the climax, like I literally would skip ahead to his parts because I was so anxious about what would happen to him. Mm-hmm. They were just so good. And then uh, just getting back to the movie, you know? Yeah. What do you think went wrong with that? I think a big thing that went wrong is that it's Disney and Disney had launched Disney Plus and they're definitely, I remember the first trailer came out and the first trailer looked okay. Like it looked like it was still sticking with the book. But it like definitely just didn't look very good. But I was excited for it because this movie has been in like production limbo since the early 2000s. I remember when it was announced that Miramac was going to make it, which is hilarious because I don't think Miramac even exists anymore. But I remember they were talking about Alex Pettifer being Artemis Fowl. I know Cameron Diaz's name was being thrown around for Holly Short. They were going to have, it was, it was just a discussion. Like it was never official, but it was like her name was being thrown around as like a possible Holly. Okay. Interesting. And then for whatever reason, it just never happened. And years and years later, I grow up. (laughs) Poor little, poor little (laughs) Caroline's hopes and dreams are smashed to bits for her Mm -hmm. favorite series being made into a movie. And then, oh, geez, it must have been four or five years ago that I found out that they were making Artemis Fowl. And I was like, 
Yes. Vindicated. <laughs> In my late 20s, I'm finally getting an Artemis Fowl movie. Um, and then the first trailer came out and it was okay looking, you know, it looked fine. It looked like I couldn't have hoped for anything better, I think, for what we normally get for these types of movies. And then it was delayed and then COVID happened and then it was delayed again. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and then they just, I think that was one of the first new movies. It's not the first new movie that they had that was released just directly to Disney plus. Yeah. No ceremony. (laughs) Here it is. (laughs) Take it. And uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was terrible. I think that was, I think that's up there with the movie that we shall not speak of. That does not exist. That does not exist. (laughs) If people don't know what we're talking about, we're talking about uh, The Last Airbender, which is a little different because that was a TV show made into a movie, but you know, it was just infamously bad. (laughs) It was, it was pretty much, it wasn't quite on that level, but it was close. And I think a lot of the reasons for that were the fact that Disney does not really take risks. And with Artemis Fowl, you have essentially a villain kidnapping a person for all intents and purposes, purposes, you know, like fairies are people and holding them for ransom, Mm -hmm. (laughs) just running around without parents, essentially. And also dealing with the trauma of his mother who is mentally ill. And I remember reading those chapters when he talks to his mom and it's, it's just absolutely devastating. Yeah. And, you know, a little bit of some scary scenes too, like the beginning scene with the, like the, the scary fairy who he has to also poison and threaten to murder. You know, typical typical kid stuff. And then um, I think there was like a big troll that they released too. And like, that was like, there was a lot of tension because some potential, potential murder could happen there too. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, and then you have, all right. So then you have Mulch Diggums, who is a fantasy dwarf who uh, essentially consumes dirt and then allows it to escape the other end. (laughs) Which is interesting. It's an interesting, it was a very creative way to write it in the books, but like having like a book do it and then having a live action sort of visually on your screen rendition of that might be a little tricky. Yeah, I think tricky is a good way of putting it. So I think there's some elements that lend itself better to being a book than a sh- or, or a movie or a show. But I also think that you have all these non-Disney traits. It's not pretty and nice and like put a nice little bow on it. You know, good guy defeats the bad guy. And um, you have Artemis Fowl, which is also a very morally gray, um, morally gray book. And I think Disney, they either needed to double down on the morally grayness or they needed to change it. Mm-hmm. And they did. <laughs> they changed yeah. it. Like they still had him be like, I don't know. They tried to do both almost, but still be like, be like, oh, this is why he's doing it. And I think in the books, he was just doing it just to make money and to like, I think it was, I mean, I think he had like some other like family motives, like maybe like kind of looking for his dad, but also kind of trying to help his mom. But it was really just for money. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just because he could and he was bored, I think. <laughs> Love it. Yeah, that's something that Disney would probably, I don't know, not handle the best. No, and they they didn't. And I think it went through, I think in the initial cut of this movie, I think it had more moral, moral grayness to it. 
because you can even see in the trailers and some of the set pictures, they're in, I think they're in Thailand in the first scene when they um, poison the fairy for the book. And that's in the trailer. Okay. But I, I, I can't remember because I literally, I just watched this movie, I don't know, maybe a month ago, but I just immediately forgot what happened. <laughs> <laughs> it was that kind of movie yeah. where you watch it and then like two days go by and you're like, I can't remember what happened. Yeah, that's a good sign. Yeah, and so they're, they were, they don't think they went to Thailand in the movie, but that was in the trailer. Mm-hmm. Uh, they casted Art, they casted Angelina Fowl, they casted Artemis Fowl's mother, but she was not in the movie at all. I don't even think they really talked about her. Okay. She wasn't there at all. That's such like a major component of his character. So I know that's like the only redeeming thing about him. Yeah, humanized. What else? They oh, and then there really wasn't any mention of gold in the in the movie. What was the motivation? It was it was a new plot device that they completely invented, which I can't remember what it's called, but it's like a an acorn. Oh, okay. It's like an acorn. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's an acorn. And I think even, oh, I can't even remember now that I'm thinking about it. And I just watched this movie recently because I was thinking about doing this for a podcast soon. I think Artemis Fowl had the acorn. So <laughs> what was the magic for? Why I forget why he can This is the problem with these adaptations is that they do such a bad job that when you go to make a professional podcast about them, you're like, wait, what happened? Nothing sticks. Nothing sticks. Absolutely nothing. And I think that that's the issue is that they decided to do this. And then they cut an original version of this movie, which had some book components to it. And then they backtracked and made a absolutely terrible movie. I think we were talking before this about why is it that the middle grade ones are the ones that go so wrong? And I think it's that specifically if they try to play both sides mm-hmm. and then kind of end up with nothing. Exactly. It's not like, it's not like a hard YA where it can be gritty and harsh and teenagers, you know, rebel and overthrow the government. Mm-hmm. It's not that it's smaller, but it's also not like a super young kids movie. So they have to find an audience that I think they don't know how to make a movie for, I guess. Yeah. I think there's, there's definitely money, a money component to it as well, because mm-hmm. when you're writing a book, like, yes, like the publication does put a lot of money into the author, into the editors, into like the actual print job of it, into the licensing. There is money that goes into that, but it's pretty small scale compared to what like a major company, movie production company might put into it. And I think the risk value is probably a lot higher because it's very finicky, like trickier. It's definitely trickier. Trickier market. So I guess that prevents people from taking risks more often than an author would. Mm-hmm. Maybe. I have no basis to this, but <laughs> just from observing, it seems like kids' books tend to do a better job of introducing like heavier topics or more intense themes and still making it age appropriate, whereas movies tend to simplify it and either take it to a younger audience or take it to an older audience. And both are mistakes, yeah. I think. I think. I think you're right. Even when they did... I know this wasn't... We weren't initially going to talk about this, but the series of Unfortunate Events books... Oh, yeah, that was those are and there's been two adaptations of that. And they're both okay. Yeah, that was I mean, Netflix, Netflix and Disney are different. I think Netflix is willing to take more risks. Mm-hmm. For the most part. Um, yeah, they don't have like the brand of family company. It's true. Them. Yeah. 
Netflix can kind of do what it wants. I mean, they've made some interesting cartoons over the years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like it's just, it's just hard when you really, especially for Disney, which prides itself as being for the most part, a clean cut family oriented business. Sure. Yeah. And you just, they just want to make nice movies. <laughs> I don't want to say simple because to be fair to Disney, they do have some more complex movies. But they for, do. For the most part, I do think they don't want to muddy the waters too much. Yeah. Like they definitely are trying. Sure. Yeah. You know, it's, they want to represent people and themes that are complex and underrepresented, but they're just kind of. They're not great at it. They don't yeah. know how to do it because they want to please a lot of people. Yeah, that's a big problem too, is mm-hmm. trying to get the biggest audience you can when perhaps a movie is, has maybe more of a niche interest, mm-hmm. which isn't a bad thing. It's just, you know, know your audience, I guess. Yeah. And then uh, they're going to take on Percy Jackson soon. Oh, God. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> we'll see how that goes. <laughs> yeah. I, you know what? I have some faith. And them and being able to do this. I don't want to be pessimistic at the gate, especially since the bar is so low. <laughs> the movie was so bad. There was two movies. There was two movies, and I only saw the first one because I'm not an advocate. <laughs> uh, yeah, so Percy Jackson, the book series, is one of my favorites, both as a librarian and also just as a person who reads, because Royerton does such a good job of, like I said before, balancing kind of intense themes. I mean, it's mythology, so there's a lot of monsters and battles, things like that. But also, you know, it's an age-appropriate book. The readers tend to be 9 to 12-ish is the intended audience, but then, of course, you get people much older who are still reading the series because it's just that well done. Um, And the movie failed hard (laughs) to take the audience into consideration at all. I think that's the biggest thing the movie did wrong, in my eyes, is they took a book series that's aimed at that middle-grade in between age and they made it for teenagers which was a choice that they made yeah um, i because i i have not read the percy jackson books um, i remember i started to read the first one a long time ago and i think i just had too much schoolwork at the time yeah there was like a good chunk of time in like middle school and high school where i just did not read because i just did not have no the overwhelmed time. yeah very overwhelmed <laughs> Yeah, they give a lot of reading in school. But actually, mm-hmm. that's why I started reading the Percy Jackson series. It was assigned to me in sixth grade. So I was about 12, I guess, or 11, 12 when I started reading the series. Um, the first book was assigned to us, and I loved it. So I immediately read the rest of the series. And I was very excited <laughs> when I heard the movie was coming out. But what they did was they took a book that is, you know, open to all ages. And they made a movie that tries so hard to be for teens that it ends up being for nobody. You know what I mean? Where, you know, they aged up the characters from 12 to like 16, 17-ish, which was, you know, bad both for the tone of the movie, but also in the movies that were to come. Because the books take place over like the age 12 to age 16. So they start at 17. I'm not sure where they thought that was going to go. And then they took humor that was more uh, reliant on sarcasm and like, quippy in a monologue, which I enjoyed reading as a kid. And they kind of just made it, you know, they made it sexual in some ways, but also in trying to make it for teens, they just revealed that they have no idea how teens interact with each other or talk (laughs) or think. Um, And it's like what we were saying before, where they try so hard to play both fields and making something for the reader, the fans of the book, and also making something for a wider audience that they make a movie that nobody liked. Yeah, like, you're trying to make something for teenagers, but the teenagers are like, this is this is patronizing. Yeah, it definitely panders a mm-hmm. lot. 
Um, and that's something that I know fans of the book were really disappointed with, is you have these young readers or people who grew up with the books um, going to see the movie, excited about it, mm-hmm. only to realize that what they're seeing is not a movie that was made for them. Yeah. So. And I know that this is a this is kind of an unfair comparison, but I know that like there was a lot of pressure to be the next Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. But what they did when they decided to cast teenagers that they took away that special element that I think is what makes Harry Potter kind of fun was that, you know, Harry Potter started like Daniel Radcliffe and Rupert Grint and Emma Watson and uh, all of them. They were between the ages of like 10 and 12 in that first movie. Mm-hmm. And then they we got to age up with them. And that's kind of what they should have done here is that they should have gotten young kids and then we could age with them. Yeah, I think that would have helped it become more, I don't know, iconic. That's what's so kind of by Harry Potter is you grow up with the characters mm-hmm. and they missed the mark on that. I do think that maybe they were suffering a bit with the comparison to Harry Potter. Sometimes when things come out in trends or waves, like well this is popular now this like fantasy-esque thing with young kids so now we'll make your thing because we can see this is popular um Mm -hmm. and they don't really focus on like caring about the story in any way yeah they just want to make money with it yeah Mm -hmm. i mean i'm sure a lot of people worked hard on the movie but yeah we're not dissing (laughs) the actors or the directors or the writers like a lot of the issues that come from movies and adaptations comes from the producers. Yeah. They kind of, sometimes they can steer something correctly and sometimes they don't. They miss the mark. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. Another thing I think went wrong with that is, I don't know if you've noticed that in the Ernest Fowl adaptation, but sometimes they tend to take um, source material that's a bit more lighthearted and fun and then make it overly serious. Oh, yeah. yeah okay. There was no fun in this. There was no fun in Artemis Fowl. Nobody was having a good time. (laughs) I think the only person who was having a good time was Josh Gad. And they made, like, they made that character a little bit problematic. They probably should have hired someone who had dwarfism to play this character. Like, they're going to change it just to be Josh Gad. Like, they just made him a tall dwarf. And I'm like, all right, guys. Sure, okay. A, that's not how the book is. And B, like, yeah, you might really want Josh Gad, but they bet they could have found someone who was right for the part, like had dwarfism, like could do it. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, I see where you're coming from, though, where it's, you know, make more roles available. And yes, like if you're if they're worried about it coming across in a bad way, just hire a sensitivity. I guess to your readers. I'm sure they have the same thing for movies. But yeah, where I think, you know, seeing stories like this about representation in Hollywood and how a white person can get a job doing any role. But then if you're part of some kind of minority, you're going to get typecast. Like you have specialized roles for you. Mm hmm. Um, so to take a role, which you could arguably give to a little person and be like, no, we're going to give it to somebody because of the name or, I don't know, a contract, whatever. It just seems like they could have done better with that. Yeah. But I don't know. Yeah. What do we know? What do we know? I feel like not only did they strip all the fun out of these characters, but just in general, I feel like a lot of times in what, in like young, tween, middle grade YA they, there's so many tonal changes. Yeah, I mean, that's something, something I noticed in the Percy Jackson uh, adaptation where they make weird choices with the tone and they make weird choices with the characters. Uh, an example I can think of is what happened to Grover, where where they took him in the book where he was kind of like awkward and sensitive. He was kind of on the verge of tears all the time, but he's still a really good friend to Percy and Annabeth. And he, you know, 
is very determined and he try he's trying really hard to make up for some mistakes he made in his past on the job. So it's really cool character motivation and it's him complex. And then in the movie, they just take that complexity away. And he's kind of nothing but comic relief. He doesn't seem to care too much about the job that he's working. He doesn't seem to have any regrets. He kind of doesn't really feel like a fully developed character, which I think is a huge shame because he was a great part of, you know, an iconic trio of three friends we feel a lot in these books and to reduce him to just here he's gonna make a joke and then wander away and now he's back to make a joke and wander away it's uh, it's sad yeah do you think that any of that has to do with the fact that they technically changed grover's race in that i mean i know he's like a centaur but like satar the close yeah satar oh that's right that's right um yeah you know to be fair i don't really know enough about this topic to speak with any kind of authority neither of us are no <laughs> but just from observation he's he's a white character in the book and african-american movie and i think it's great that they add more diversity to the cast 100 percent, we are all for that yes please do that more often hollywood just in general just write great characters in and, general and, make <laughs> and diverse fun. characters yeah um yeah so you know i think it's great that they did that but then why did they have to change i think it's unfortunate that they added diversity and then reduced the character i don't think that's completely isolated if i had to guess just looking at the atmosphere of hollywood um to add diversity to a role and then strip all like the characterization and just make them comic relief yes you can have a diverse character be multi-dimensional they don't have to be just comic relief they can please stop (laughs) please stop we're begging you (laughs) Please make a diverse cast of interesting, complex people. It's allowed. Yeah. We do. We we have that every day in real life. Exactly. That's what you <laughs> have to do. Is you take, write a character, okay, and then just make them reflect people in the real world. They're not one dimensional here to fill a role on them, wander off page, like you know. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't know. They did that with a lot of characters in the movie. It's pretty standard in Hollywood. I feel like. There is a push to change that. It's just not quite there yet. No, hopefully that changes. Like right now, like yesterday, <laughs> 10 years ago. At any point, please. <laughs> Feel free to write people. Yeah. Uh, we live in a, in a big world with a lot of people in it. Mm-hmm. Please write better. Please have more diverse writers and directors. Yeah, that would help that immensely. Would... <laughs> more voices with different backgrounds. All right. So I guess, you know, just make better adaptations, but uh, what do you think that entails? When you hope for the new Disney Percy Jackson series, what do you hope for? Well, I think to start off with, I understand that changes have to be made. Books and movies or books and TV, two different mediums, you know, the way you represent things is going to be different. I understand that, even though I prefer books. So you can make changes, but the changes have to make sense. Um, and they have to at least reflect the heart of the book, which I think is something that a lot of ad- adaptations do wrong. There's a lot of interesting stuff in Percy Jackson, but the best part about this series, I think, is you can tell that Rick Riordan loves the series that he's writing, and he has a lot of passion behind it. So as long as you can translate like that passion and care for the story, you're going to have a good a- adaptation. Mm-hmm. So try to stay true to the themes, try to stay true to how the characters are, and then plot points change as you need to change them. Yeah, I agree. And the same thing with Artemis Fowl, like, not that anyone will ever make it again. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, if you, like, change the plot, change, maybe, I, maybe if you need to combine the first book and the second book, you know, don't do that, but if you have to. <laughs> 
by all means do it. Keep what makes Artemis, what makes some of these books great is the moral grayness of it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, kids are allowed to, you know, experience dark themes. Yeah. I mean, they, they have to realize. Do, yeah. So, yeah, I think another thing, this is just my personal bias, make more things animated. You can do so much with animation. Oh my God, yes. Especially if you have like fantasy sci-fi stuff. Mm -hmm. Why invest in like live action mixed with CGI when you just make the whole thing an animated thing? And I think that more people are enjoying an animation than ever before. Like I grew up watching cartoons and still like I know I mentioned it before and I will mention it a thousand times because I love it is um Avatar the Last Airbender yes. the greatest show on earth nothing better not nothing better it's perfect and there's just so many good cartoons out there there's you know Gravity Falls there's the Owl House the Owl House I just watched the new DuckTales okay I actually binged all three seasons of that and that was absolutely fantastic Rec- if you have Disney Plus, go watch DuckTales, the <laughs> 2017 reboot of it. It was really good. Okay, I'll watch my list. <laughs> and yeah, it's just fantasy just lends itself so much to just being animated. Yeah, I think if, you know, people who make movies and TV took it more seriously, we would see more mm-hmm. stories animated. Because it's a great medium. There's a lot you can do with it. Yeah, and you don't have to worry about stunts and special effects, even though those are great. And I want those people that do that work to have jobs. Yeah. But also, like... Animators need jobs. Animators also need jobs. <laughs> Please go. animate more things. You can do so much with that. Listen to us. <laughs> All right. And then... Um, oh, and then I guess, how much do you feel like nostalgia also plays into these kind of things? I know... All right, so this is a little lower than middle grade, but the 1998 Madeline is so good. (laughs) It has Frances McDermott, and it was just so good. It was so cute. And probably if I went back and watched it now, I'd be like, all right, this is definitely not the best adaptation ever. But no one ever talks about the 1998 live-action Madeline, and people should. (laughs) I have definitely seen it, but I don't remember enough about it. I do remember liking it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think when you have movies like that, I think something that made that movie so good, if like, memory serves me, is just allowing it to be a kid's movie. Yeah. Just like knowing your audience. Um, and having, letting it have heart and also yeah. having Frances McDermott in it. There should be more movies, let's be honest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think nostalgia can be a good thing and it can be a bad thing. I do think sometimes nostalgia colors how we see Oh, definitely. Yeah, obviously. Yeah. You know, that's nothing new. We know that. But I also think that if you're a person, a director, a producer, relying too much on nostalgia can be a mistake because your goal, first and foremost, should be make a good movie, which is something I think we can agree both Artemis Fowl and Percy Jackson did not do. Don't worry so much about making the perfect adaptation, like beat by beat. Focus on making a good movie and then, you know, people mm-hmm. will come. So you don't have to rely so much on hitting the nostalgia beats. Yeah, especially if you're like a big corporation, like people will come, please make them happy. That's, that's your job. That's actually the, I know the objective is truly to make money, but nothing makes more money than a happy audience. Yes. So there you go. What do you think makes things better than the adaptation? Like, like most people don't think of the Wizard of Oz as a book. They think of it as the Wizard of Oz with Judy Garland. Yeah, that's a good point. I, uh, if you want to talk specifically about The Wizard of Oz, because I think that's a great example, is what we just said, they made a great movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, have you ever read the book? I have not. Oh, it's good. It's a, the book is really good, but they change a lot. Um, 
including something that I actually criticized earlier where they age up the character because she's mm. like, I don't know, six in the book oh. and they made her a teenager. But they aged her up, but they kept the tone the same, which was a great choice. And they just had a lot of like iconic imagery. The writing was really great. The acting was really great. So I think culturally it was important at the time because I think that was the second movie in color. Oh, yeah. I want to say that that's correct. I might be wrong. It sounds correct. That sounds right. That sounds right. I'm probably wrong. I'm going to look this up. <laughs> and I'm, I'm assuming Judy Garland was like a big actress at the time. Yeah. I don't know at what point in her career that was, but she, I think she was big at that, at that time, or at least on the rise. I think another thing about the Wizard of Oz is like you were saying, it had a lot of heart, you know, mm-hmm. I don't, I can't speak to the intent of people who made it, but it seemed like they cared about what they were making. At least enough, well, they, you know, they made it fun. They did make it fun. They didn't tone down any of the ridiculousness and they didn't tone down any of the like, fun and lightheartedness. Mm-hmm. So, and there's also, there's a lot of tension. There's a lot of tension. There's a lot of scary scenes. There's a lot of, like, like, you know what? It still gives me anxiety when the, she turns over the hourglass and then like, yeah. And also it's so heartbreaking when she's going Annie M and she's looking in the ball and it's Annie M and then it turns into the Wicked Witch. Yeah. <laughs> I love that level <laughs> of pettiness from the Wicked Witch. Great. She commits fully to being a villain. It's wonderful. Mm-hmm. That and the flying monkeys when they're yeah. tearing apart the scarecrow. It's terrifying. It is actually terrible. That whole scene is like kind of it is. It's still traumatized. I've repressed it. Yeah. <laughs> it's gonna come back in nightmares now. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and I think it really was just such a like a cultural phenomenon when it came out. Yeah. It's just, there's just every once in a while, there's just a movie that just transcends mm-hmm. the movie industry. Yeah. Just a movie that's, you know, so iconic that it, it makes its place in pop culture forever. I agree. And then do you have any, any other projects that you hope get made? You know what? <laughs> I want to say yes, but at the same time, I've always preferred books over movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, which makes sense for the profession that I'm in. But so I'd rather have the book and love the book than have a disappointing movie. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think all this all these book adaptations have been have been done. Yeah. They need to stop. Please make original content now. Oh please. <laughs> yeah, book adaptations were a trend for a while and uh, then it was sequels and remakes, reboots. I would love an original story. Please make original things. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for talking to me. Yeah, thank you for having me. Of course. All right. And you guys can find Sarah at the YA desk in the reference room. Yes, every day for the most part. (laughs) All right. And welcome to the library.